This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Good Soldier, A Tale of Passion by Ford Maddox Ford, Beati Immaculati, Part 1, 3. It was a very hot summer in August, 1904, and Florence had already been taking the baths for a month. I don't know how it feels to be a patient at one of those places. I never was a patient anywhere. I dare say the patients get a home feeling and some sort of anchorage in the spot, they seem to like the bath attendants, with their cheerful faces, their air of authority, their white linen. But for myself, to be at Nauheim gave me a sense, what shall I say, a sense almost of nakedness, the nakedness that one feels on the seashore or in any great open space. I had no attachments, no accumulations. In one's own home, it is as if little innate sympathies draw one to particular chairs that seem to enfold one in an embrace, or take one along particular streets that seem friendly when others may be hostile. And, believe me, that feeling is a very important part of life. I know it well that have been so long a wanderer upon the face of public resorts. And one is too polished up. Heaven knows I was never an untidy man, but the feeling that I had when, whilst poor Florence was taking her morning bath, I stood upon the carefully swept steps of the Englisher Hof, looking at the carefully arranged trees and tubs upon the carefully arranged gravel, whilst carefully arranged people walked past in carefully calculated gaiety at the carefully calculated hour the tall trees of public gardens going up to the right, the reddish stones of the baths, or the white half-timber chalets. Hmm. Upon my word I have forgotten, I who was there so often. That will give you the measure of how much I was in the landscape. I could find my way blindfold to the hot rooms, to the douche rooms, to the fountain in the center of the quadrangle where the rusty water gushes out. Yes, I could find my way blindfolded, I know the exact distances. From the Hotel Regina, you took 187 paces. Then, turning sharp, left-handed, 420 took you straight down to the fountain. From the Englisherhof, starting on the sidewalk, it was 97 paces and the same 420, but turning left-handed this time. And now you understand that, having nothing in the world to do, but nothing whatever, I fell into the habit of counting my footsteps. I would walk with Florence to the baths. And, of course, she entertained me with her conversation. It was, as I have said, wonderful what she could make conversation out of. She walked very lightly, and her hair very nicely done, and she dressed beautifully and very expensive. Of course, she had money of her own, but I shouldn't have minded. And yet, you know, I can't remember a single one of her dresses. Or I can remember just one, a very simple one of blue-figured silk, a Chinese pattern, very full in the skirts and broadened out over the shoulders, and her hair was copper-colored, and the heels of her shoes were exceedingly high, so that she tripped upon the points of her shoes. And when she came to the door of the bathing-place, and when it opened to receive her, she would 
looked back at me with a little coquettish smile, so that her cheeks appeared to be caressing her shoulder. I seem to remember that, with that dress, she wore an immensely long leghorn hat, like the chapeau de paille of Rubens, only very white. The hat would be tied with a lightly knotted scarf of the same stuff as her dress. She knew how to give value to her blue eyes. And round her neck would be some simple pink coral beads. And her complexion had a perfect clearness, a perfect smoothness. Yes, that is how I most exactly remember her, in that dress, in that hat, looking over her shoulder at me so that the eyes flashed very blue, dark. Pebble blue. And what the devil? For whose benefit did she do it? For that of the bath attendant? Of the passers-by? I don't know. Anyhow, it can't have been for me. For never in all the years of her life, never on any possible occasion or in any other place, did she so smile to me, mockingly, invitingly. She was a riddle. But then all other women are riddles. And it occurs to me that some way back I began a sentence that I had never finished. It was about the feeling that I had when I stood on the steps of my hotel every morning before starting out to fetch Florence back from the bath. Natty, precise, well brushed, conscious of being rather small amongst the long English, the lank Americans, the rotund Germans, and the obese Jewesses, I should stand there. Tapping a cigarette on the outside of my case, surveying for a moment the world in the sunlight. But a day was to come when I was never to do it again alone. You can imagine, therefore, what the coming of the Ashburnhams meant to me. I have forgotten the aspect of many things, but I shall never forget the aspect of the dining room of the Hotel Excelsior on that evening, and on so many other evenings. Whole castles have vanished from my memory, whole cities that I have never visited again. But that white room, festooned with papier-mâché fruits and flowers, the tall windows, the many tables, the black screen round the door with three golden cranes flying upward on each panel, the palm tree in the centre of the room, the swish of the waiter's feet. The cold, expensive elegance, the men of the diners as they came in every evening, their air of earnestness as if they must go through a meal prescribed by the cur authorities, and their air of sobriety as if they must seek not by any means to enjoy their meals. Those things I shall not easily forget. And then one evening in the twilight, I saw Edward Ashburnham lounge round the screen into the room. The head waiter, a man with a face all grey, in what subterranean nooks or corners do people cultivate those absolutely grey complexions? Went with the timorous patronage of these creatures towards him and held out a grey ear to be whispered into. It was generally a disagreeable ordeal for newcomers, but Edward Ashburnham bore it like an Englishman and a gentleman. I could see his lips form a word of three syllables. Remember, I had nothing in the world to do but to notice these niceties, and immediately I knew that he must be Edward Ashburnham, Captain, Fourteenth Hussars of Branshaw House, Branshaw Teleraw. I knew it because every evening just before dinner, whilst I waited in the hall, 
I used, by the courtesy of Monsieur Chance, the proprietor, to inspect the little police reports that each guest was expected to sign upon taking a room. The headwaiter piloted him immediately to a vacant table, three away from my own. The table that the Grenfells of Falls River, New Jersey, had just vacated. It struck me that that was not a very nice table for the newcomers, since the sunlight, low though it was, shone straight down upon it. And the same idea seemed to come at the same moment into Captain Ashburnham's head. His face hitherto had, in the wonderful English fashion, expressed nothing whatever. Nothing. There was in it neither joy nor despair, neither hope nor fear, neither boredom nor satisfaction. He seemed to perceive no soul in that crowded room. He might have been walking in a jungle. I never came across such a perfect expression before, and I never shall again. It was insolence and not insolence. It was modesty and not modesty. His hair was fair, extraordinarily ordered in a wave running from the left temple to the right. His face was a light brick red, perfectly uniform in tint up to the roots of the hair itself. His yellow moustache was as stiff as a toothbrush, and I verily believe that he had his black smoking jacket thickened a little over the shoulder blades so as to give himself the air of the slightest possible stoop. It would be like him to do that. That was the sort of thing he thought about. Martingales, chiffney bits, boots, where you got the best soap, the best brandy, the name of the chap who rode a plater down the Khyber cliffs, the spreading power of number three shot before a charge of number four powder by heavens. I hardly ever heard him talk of anything else. Not in all the years that I knew him did I hear him talk of anything but these subjects. Oh, yes, once he told me that I could buy my special shade of blue ties cheaper from a firm in Burlington Arcade than from my own people in New York, and I have bought my ties from that firm ever since. Otherwise, I should not remember the name of the Burlington Arcade. I wonder what it looks like. I've never seen it. I imagine it to be two immense rows of pillars like those of the Forum at Rome, with Edward Ashburnham striding down between them. But it probably isn't the least like that. Once, also, he advised me to buy Caledonian Deferred, since they were due to rise. And I did buy them, and they did rise. But of how he got the knowledge, I haven't the faintest idea. It seemed to drop out of the blue sky. And that was absolutely all I knew of him until a month ago. That and the profusion of his cases, all a pigskin and stamped with his initials E.F.A. There were gun cases and collar cases and shirt cases and letter cases and cases each containing four bottles of medicine and hat cases and helmet cases. It must have needed a whole herd of the gadarene swine to make up his outfit. And if I ever penetrated into his private room, it would be to see him standing with his coat and waistcoat off and the immensely long line of his perfectly elegant trousers from waist to boot heel. And he would have a slightly reflective air and he would be just opening one kind of case and just closing another. Good God, what did they see in him? For I swear there was all there was of him inside and out, though they said he was a good soldier. Yet... Leonora adored him with a passion that was like an agony and hated him with an agony that was as bitter as the sea. How could he arouse anything like a sentiment in anybody? What did he even talk to them about when they were under four eyes? Ah, well, 
suddenly, as if by a flash of inspiration, I know. For all good soldiers are sentimentalists, all good soldiers of that type. Their profession, for one thing, is full of the big words, courage, loyalty, honor, constancy. And I have given the wrong impression of Edward Ashburnham if I have made you think that literally never in the course of our nine years of intimacy did he discuss what he would have called the graver things. Even before his final outburst to me, at times, very late at night, say, he has blurted out something that gave an insight into the sentimental view of the cosmos that was his. He would say how much the society of a good woman could do towards redeeming you, and he would say that constancy was the finest of the virtues. He said it very stiffly, of course, but still as if the sentiment admitted of no doubt. Constancy! Isn't that the queer thought? And yet, I must add that poor dear Edward was a great reader. He would pass hours lost in novels of a sentimental type. Novels in which typewriter girls married marquesses and governesses earls. And in his books, as a rule, the course of true love ran as smooth as buttered honey. And he was fond of poetry of a certain type, and he could even read a perfectly sad love story. I have seen his eyes filled with tears at reading of a hopeless parting. And he loved with a sentimental yearning all children, puppies, and the feeble, generally. So, you see he would have plenty to gurgle about to a woman. With that and his sound common sense about martingales and his still sentimental experiences as a county magistrate, and with his intense, optimistic belief that the woman he was making love to at the moment was the one he was destined at last to be eternally constant to, well, I fancy he could put up a pretty good deal of talk when there was no man around to make him feel shy. And I was quite astonished during his final burst out to me, at the very end of things, when the poor girl was on her way to that fatal Brindisi, and he was trying to persuade himself and me that he had never really cared for her. I was quite astonished to observe how literary and how just his expressions were. He talked like quite a good book, a book not in the least cheaply sentimental. You see, I suppose he regarded me not so much as a man— I had to be regarded as a woman, or a solicitor. Anyhow, it burst out of him on that horrible night. And then, next morning, he took me over to the Assises, and I saw how, in a perfectly calm and businesslike way, he set to work to secure the verdict of not guilty for the poor girl, the daughter of one of his tenants, who had been accused of murdering her baby. He spent two hundred pounds on her defense. Well, that was Edward Ashburnham. I had forgotten about his eyes. They were as blue as the sides of a certain type of box of matches. When you looked at them carefully, you saw that they were perfectly honest, perfectly straightforward, perfectly, perfectly stupid. But the brick pink of his complexion, running perfectly level to the brick pink of his inner eyelids, gave them a curious sinister expression, like a mosaic of blue porcelain set in pink china. And that chap coming into a room, snapped up the gaze of every woman in it, as dexterously as the conjurer pockets billiard balls. It was almost amazing. You know the man on the stage who throws up sixteen balls at once and they all drop into pockets all over his person, on his shoulders, on his heels, on the inner side of his sleeves, and he stands perfectly still and does nothing. Well, it was like that. He had a rather rough, hoarse voice. 
And there he was, standing by the table. I was looking at him with my back to the screen, and suddenly I saw two distinct expressions flicker across his immobile eyes. How the deuce did they do it, those unflinching blue eyes with the direct gaze? For the eyes themselves never moved, gazing over my shoulder towards the screen. And the gaze was perfectly level and perfectly direct and perfectly unchanging. I suppose that the lids really must have rounded themselves a little, and perhaps the lips moved a little too, as if he should be saying, There you are, my dear. At any rate, the expression was that of pride, of satisfaction, of the possessor. I saw him once afterwards for a moment gaze upon the sunny fields of Branshaw and say, All this is my land. And then again the gaze was perhaps more direct, harder if possible, hardy too. It was a measuring look, a challenging look. Once when we were at Wiesbaden watching him play in a polo match against the Bonner Husserin, I saw the same look come into his eyes, balancing the possibilities, looking over the ground. The German captain, Count Baron Edigon von Lelofel, was right up by their goalpost, coming with the ball in an easy canter in that tricky German fashion. The rest of the field was just anywhere. It was only a scratch sort of affair. Ashburnham was quite close to the rails, not five yards from us, and I heard him saying to himself, Might just be done. And he did it. Goodness! He swung that pony round with all its four legs spread out, like a cat dropping off a roof. Well, it was just that look that I noticed in his eyes. It might, I seem even now to hear him muttering to himself, just be done. I looked round my shoulder and saw, tall, smiling, brilliantly and buoyant, Leonora. And little and fair, and as radiant as the track of sunlight along the sea, my wife. That poor wretch. To think that he was at that moment in a perfect devil of a fix, and there he was, saying in the back of his mind, It might just be done. It was like a chap in the middle of the eruption of a volcano, saying that he might just manage to bolt into the tumult and set fire to a haystack. Madness? Predestination? Who the devil knows? Mrs. Ashburnham exhibited at that moment more gaiety than I have ever since known her to show. There are certain classes of English people the nicer ones, when they have been to many spas, who seem to make a point of becoming much more than usually animated when they are introduced to my compatriots. I have noticed this often. Of course, they must first have accepted the Americans, but that once done, they seem to say to themselves, Hello, these women are so bright, we aren't going to be outdone in brightness. And for the time being, they certainly aren't. But it wears off. So it was with Leonora at least until she noticed me. She began, Leonora did, and perhaps it was that that gave me the idea of a touch of insolence in her character, for she never afterwards did any one single thing like it. She began by saying in quite a loud voice and from quite a distance, Don't stop over by that stuffy old table, Teddy. Come and sit by these nice people. And that was an extraordinary thing to say. Quite extraordinary. I couldn't for the life of me refer to total strangers as nice people, but of course she was taking a line of her own, in which I, at any rate, and no one else in the room, for she too had taken the trouble to read through the lists of guests, counted any more than so many clean bull terriers. And she sat down rather brilliantly at a vacant table beside ours, one that was reserved for the Guggenheimers, and she just sat absolutely deaf to the remonstrances of the head waiter with his face like a grey ram's. 
That poor chap was doing his steadfast duty, too. He knew that the Guggenheimers of Chicago, after they had stayed there a month and had worried the poor life out of him, would give him two dollars fifty and grumble at the tipping system. And he knew that Teddy Ashburnham and his wife would give him no trouble whatever, except what the smiles of Leonora might cause in his apparently unimpressionable bosom, though you never can tell what may go on behind even a not-quite-spotless plastron. And every week Edward Ashburnham would give him a solid, sound, golden English sovereign. Yet this stout fellow was intent on saving that table for the Guggenheimers of Chicago. It ended in Florence saying, Why shouldn't we all eat out of the same trough? That's a nasty New York saying. But I'm sure we're all nice, quiet people, and there can be four seats at our table. It's round. Then came, as it were, an appreciative gurgle from the captain, and I was perfectly aware of a slight hesitation, a quick, sharp motion in Mrs. Ashburnham, as if her horse had checked. But she put it at the fence all right, rising from the seat she had taken and sitting down opposite me as if it were all in one motion. I never thought that Leonora looked her best in evening dress. She seemed to get it too clearly cut. There was no ruffling. She always affected black, and her shoulders were too classical. She seemed to stand out of her corsage as a white marble bust might out of a black Wedgwood vase. I don't know. I loved Leonora always. And today I would very cheerfully lay down my life, what is left of it, in her service. But I am sure I never had the beginnings of a trace of what is called the sex instinct towards her. And I suppose, no, I am certain that she never had it towards me. As far as I am concerned, I think it was those white shoulders that did it. I seemed to feel when I looked at them that if ever I should press my lips upon them, they would be slightly cold, not icily, not without a touch of human heart, but, as they say at baths, with a chill off. I seemed to feel chilled at the end of my lips when I looked at her. No, Leonora always appeared to me at her best in a blue tailor-made, then her glorious hair wasn't deadened by her white shoulders. Certain women's lines give your eyes to their necks, their eyelashes, their lips, their breasts. But Leonora seemed to conduct your gaze always to her wrist. And the wrist was at its best in a black or dogskin glove. And there was always a gold circlet with a little chain supporting a very small golden key to a dispatch box. Perhaps it was that in which she locked her heart up and her feelings. Anyhow, she sat down opposite me, and then for the first time she paid any attention to my existence. She gave me, suddenly, yet deliberately, one long stare. Her eyes, too, were blue and dark, and the eyelids were so arched that they gave you the whole round of the irises. It was a most remarkable, a most moving glance, as if for a moment a lighthouse had looked at me. I seemed to perceive the swift questions chasing each other through the brain that was behind them. I seemed to hear the brain ask and the eyes answer with all the simpleness of a woman who was a good hand at taking in qualities of a horse, as indeed she was. Stands well, has plenty of room for his oats behind the girth, not so much in the way of shoulders, and so on. And so her eyes asked, is this man trustworthy in money matters? Is he very likely to play the lover? Is he likely to let his woman be troublesome? Is he, above all, likely to babble about my affairs? And suddenly, into those cold, slightly defiant, almost defensive china-blue orbs, there came a warmth, a tenderness, 
a friendly recognition. Oh, it was very charming and very touching, and quite mortifying. It was the look of a mother to her son, or of a sister to her brother. It implied trust. It implied the want of any necessity for barriers. By God, she looked at me as if I were an invalid, as any kind woman may look at a poor chap in a bath chair. And yes, from that day forward, she always treated me as if I were an invalid. Why, she would run after me with a rug upon chilly days. I suppose, therefore, that her eyes had made a favorable answer. Or perhaps it wasn't a favorable answer. And then Florence said, And so the whole round table is begun. Again, Edward Ashburnham gurgled slightly in his throat. But Leonora shivered a little as if a goose had walked over her grave. And I was passing her the nickel-silver basket of rolls. Avanti! End of Part 1, 3 of The Good Soldier Recording by Richard Grove